You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on Romans, presented by Justin Hibbard. We're going to turn our attention to Romans chapter 10 this morning as we continue our series on Romans. And as just as kind of a refresher, we've been going through the book of Romans. Um, and I just find it so, you know, it's, it's surreal being up here. I've, I've sat back there many times as Gary has presented Romans, especially this part of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And uh, Gary is a fantastic teacher. I had him in middle school. I had him in high school Bible. And then at, for six years or so, I sat back there as he presented the Word of God. I think the, if, if someone to say, what, what's the one thing that Gary instilled in you over the, over the course of your relationship together? It would be a love for God's Word, a love for God's Word. And you just... Every time I open it up, it's like there's something new. And you learn to study it, and you learn to read it, and you learn to look deep into it. And it's not just simply words. They're, they're profound thoughts, and we'll see those today as we look in Romans. Well, just to kind of refresh you on the context of Romans, because we kind of split the series up over the course of a year. And let's go back to the context. The context of the books, book of Romans is that Paul is writing a letter to a specific church in Rome, to the church at Rome. It's the only church at Rome that we know of. And the church at Rome had two groups in it. It had the Jews and it had the Gentiles, right? And, (laughs) and, 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 (laughs) many of these guys may end up coming to your congregation at some point. So anyways, uh, so they had the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay, maybe they didn't look quite like this. Maybe they looked a little more like this. Okay, the Jews and the Gentiles were part of this congregation. And of course, they had, there was some difficulty there. There were some challenges with these two groups. And you, to understand the challenge, we kind of have to understand a little bit about the history of the Jewish evangelism that happened in the Gentile world in early Christianity in the first century. If I could Take your attention to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we read about Peter having this vision. We just studied this in our Bible study. Peter has this vision of a blanket coming down from heaven. On the blanket are unclean animals. And the Lord says, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter says, I will not defile myself by eating something unclean. To which God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. So that was in Acts chapter 10. So, and the, and the real, and what happens in this story is that in this vision, Peter wakes up and he realizes the purpose of this, of this vision eventually. He is to go to a man named Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile, a centurion who lived in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. And so Peter was to go to, to Cornelius' house and preach the gospel. But getting to Cornelius' house, he realizes something. He realizes how unkosher, how unclean it is for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house, and he makes note of that. But nonetheless, he realizes and he makes the connection between the vision he had about what God has made clean and the need for these people to hear the word of God. And so he begins to preach. And as he preaches, they hear. As they hear, they believe. As they believe, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 10. He says, I now realize... How true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
And then afterwards he says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Well, when in Acts 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, everyone wants to know. They want to know, why did you enter and eat at a house filled with Gentiles? And Peter explains what happened. And he says this in Acts 11. In verse 17, he said, So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And in verse 18, the response, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I think we often don't realize this, mostly uh, us who are mainly Gentiles. We think, well, duh, Jesus came for the Gentiles too. But think about this. For the first third of the book of Acts, they didn't think that the Messiah applied to the Gentiles. They thought it only applied to the Jewish people. And so it's not until Acts chapter 10 and then Acts chapter 11 we see more and more Jews going to uh, the Gentile world to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Of course, that's going to cause some issues. Well, what issues might that cause? Well, think about this. The Jewish people have a rich history, a rich custom, a rich understanding of the Torah. The Gentiles do not. Paul says in Romans 9, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Everything, he says. They have the law, they have the prophets, they have temple worship, they have the Ark of the Covenant. They have all of this context to the Messiah that the Jewish people don't have. And I would dare say that I think there's still some conflict that happens between Jewish and Gentile people. Would you guys agree in some degree? I remember, if, I remember maybe, I think maybe five or six years ago, there was a couple that was attending here, maybe four, four or five years ago. There was a couple attending here, a wonderful couple. And they ended up moving out of state, but before they did, they were attending this church as well as a Messianic congregation, um, well, a little bit away from here. And so they would attend there on Saturday and they would attend with us on Sunday. And I, at some point they decided for whatever reason that maybe going to church twice a week was a little much. So they were just going to start coming here. And she said to me, I, you know, I told my friend at our Messianic congregation and my friend said, what do you want to do? Why do you want to associate with those Gentiles? And I was kind of taken aback. I was like, really? Like, have, didn't we deal with this 2000 years ago? Isn't this over? You know, but, uh, but it's not. It's a big issue. And you can understand kind of the challenge that Peter and some of the others had. You know, when Peter gives his first messages in Jerusalem, he preaches, and he preaches based on the history of the Jewish people, on the law and on the prophets, on what Moses did, on what David said, on on what Isaiah prophesied, all of these things that they would have known about. And then he says, this is now fulfilled through Jesus the Messiah. Well, now that he's now that he's entering into Gentiles' homes, here they are going from... Uh, into Antioch and some other cities. And here are these Gentiles that don't know who Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Jewish people, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple. They don't have any context to that whatsoever. So you can understand the challenges that probably existed within the early church community made up of Jews and Gentiles. So Paul, in his letter, builds a case over and over, he sort of lays down foundation upon foundation. We looked at this last week. He begins with Romans chapters 1 through 3. All are under condemnation. Notice it's sort of a letter to the Gentiles because he does not appeal to their condemnation based on their inability to follow the law. Why? 
because they don't know what the law is. They don't know what the law says. And says, instead, he says, you are under condemnation because you've ignored the nature of God that has been revealed to you, that has been plain to you. You have ignored it. In Romans 4 through 5, he said, salvation, though, is obtained by believing in God. And then we look through 6 through 8, which says, we are free from the law and sin, secure under grace. And now we get to this portion, and Steve introduced it with chapter 9 last week. What about the Jewish people? What about the Jewish people? So we're actually going to look uh, in Romans 9, at the end of Romans 9 today, some of the, the chapter markers between 9 and 11 are not very very good. They don't break up in good spots. So we're going to start with chapter 9. We're going to go about two-thirds of the way through chapter 10, and I'll conclude next week with chapter 10 and 11 on this portion of Romans. In verse 30 of chapter 9, here's what Paul says. He says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursue the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, this is continuing chapter 10, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Well, let's take a look at this portion of scripture here. The first thing that Paul does is he, he, um, looks at a couple of passages in Isaiah talking about the cornerstone or the stone. And what he's doing, he's actually pulling from two passages from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 20. It's actually a very brilliant thing that he does. Because in Isaiah 8, we read this. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. So we see part of that was taken from Isaiah 8. And the other part is taken from Isaiah 28:16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic or will never be put to shame. So what is he saying? Well, Paul is making the connection between these two stones. And he's saying that the two stones that Isaiah refers to here are one and the same. And it's not an it, it is a who. The one who they put their trust into will never be put to shame. Well, if we look on, uh, if we, if we continue in Romans chapter 10, he talks about the righteousness that, that the Jewish people tried to attain for themselves. So what is he saying? He's saying that they always try, or at least some, have always tried to obtain a righteousness based on obedience to the law. Obedience to the law. So when Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law, it causes them to stumble because they don't recognize it. They don't recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. You see, in their eyes, and you can understand this, you say, well, I love God, I'm going to keep his commandments. Well, here's, here's the problem with trying to keep the law. We look at it like we do batting averages, right? If I bat 300 in the major leagues, I am really good. 
right? But what does that mean? That means I fail seven out of ten times. But in baseball, that's okay. I mean, could you imagine taking home a math paper with a 30% on and being like, awesome, mom, you know, right? <laughs> right? And your, and your parents be like, no, that's not awesome, right? You're grounded, give me your phone, right? And, and, and we would, um, and, and that's what, that's what we do. We have a relativism about what is good, what is acceptable, and what is not. So even if I'm capable of obeying the law 99% of the time, I can pat myself on the back because I'm probably doing better than everyone else. But here's the problem. God's standard is not 99% of the time. It's not batting 300. It's 100% of the time. This is why Paul in Romans 3.23 says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. He says, for all have sinned. Well, the word sin, hamartia, to miss the mark. So no matter how much we try, we cannot rise to the level of God's expectation on following the law. God knows this. And his solution is graceful and merciful in that he gives us, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, that if we put our faith on him, we will not be put to shame. In Romans 1, Paul says this. In Romans 1.17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's going to tell us what faith is. So he's saying it's not a right, the righteousness of God is not obedience to the law or your perceived obedience to the law. Because your obedience to the law falls short. It is in the righteousness of Jesus, in the faith in Jesus. In Philippians 3, here's what Paul says. He says, I consider them garbage. And he's talking about obedience to the law and, and, and being the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's in Ephesians 2 that Paul says, for it is by grace we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. In Romans 10, Paul continues this in verse 5. He says this, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend in heaven. That is to bring Christ down or who will descend in the deep. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is kind of a a tricky passage. It's sort of complicated. You know, I spent a lot of weeks looking at Romans 10 and thinking what Peter thought, that Paul was a very confusing man. And, um, and, and I, some of this stuff can be kind of confusing, but think about this. Moses says that the, the righteous, he says the person who does these things will live by them, right? So, so you can understand that someone who obeys the law would say, or someone who, who regards God would say, well, the law isn't a burden. It's a blessing. Right, the law. Why wouldn't we want to follow God's commands and His decrees? If we love God, we will obey the law. But what Paul is talking about here is where does salvation come from? And he says we shouldn't say into our hearts that, "Hey, where? How do we get to Jesus? Maybe we need to climb to the highest heavens to get Him." That's what we've got to do to get to Jesus. That's what we have to do to get to salvation. Or, you know what, maybe we have to dive into the depths of despair. You know, we have to beat ourselves up to get to Jesus. 
So where is Jesus? Where is salvation? In Romans 10.8, he says this, But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So then again, he comes back to Isaiah. He who believes on that cornerstone, that stone, that precious stone, that tried stone, will never be put to shame. And this is, this is great because what, Rome, what Paul is saying here in Romans, because here, here the Jewish people believe that righteousness came from obedience to the law. Here the Gentiles are saying, well, I don't know what the law is and so forth. And this is, Paul is making a clear statement. He's addressing both groups and he says this, this is what it means to have faith. This is what it means to be righteous. It means this. The message that we proclaim, it's not far from you. You don't have to climb to the heavens. You don't have to dive to the depths of despair to get it. It's right on your lips. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean to have faith? To declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to be justified and have faith alone in our Lord Jesus. So the beauty is this. That what he's saying, and he comes, and he's gonna call, he's gonna come up with one next verse, and his next verse is kind of the climax of chapters 9 through 11. It is the thesis statement. You know, we look at, and Romans has a number of them, in the kind of the, theological part about uh, condemnation and grace and so forth. He gets to Romans 8 and it's filled with these awesome verses like, so what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, not, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for, for us, you know, how, how will he hold back anything from God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? And then, of course, ends chapter 8. For I am convinced that neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's kind of the thesis, the climax statement of that, those first eight chapters here. And the next verse is a beautiful summary. Here's what Paul comes up in, in Romans 10, verse 12. He says this, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is, this is it. What's he saying? Is it, is he saying that there are, there is no such thing as being Jewish or being Jewish is of no concern or of no use or of no worth? That's not what he's saying because he tells us in Romans 9, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? Everything, right? He's not saying those distinctions don't exist or that they're not meaningful. What he's saying is this. There is no difference by which Jews and Gentiles receive salvation. It's not through obedience to law, and it's not through anything else other than faith in the Lord Jesus. That is the point of what he is saying. So you think about this, and and I think about another implication of this passage, and sort of the the cultural difference that existed in the early church. I, I think if, 
Paul were writing today, he would not be writing one letter to one church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. I, I wonder sometimes if he would be writing to two. He would write two letters, one to Jew, a Jewish church and one to a Gentile church. And I think about this because, uh, and I'll give you an illustration. Uh, as many of you know, I teach a web design class at um, a, private, a local private school. And I really enjoy it. One of the first things that we do in our class is that we look at how websites market to a very specific crowd. So I teach them how to look for things like fonts and colors and pictures especially to discern who are they targeting, who are they marketing. What is that text saying? How is it marketing women rather than men? How is it marketing to this group rather than this group? And we look at that, and then I show them a picture of a, uh, a picture that's on our, our the front page of our website. And I say, okay, I want you to pretend that you've never come to this school before, and I want you to tell me everything that this picture tells you about our school, pretending you've never been there. And so, you know, you get the the initial answers like. They all look happy to be there. You know, and they're like, well, that's because we told them to smile, right? <laughs> and, and then you say, well, they, they all look studious. They're carrying heavy backpacks and books and so forth. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we're, we're getting somewhere. And then someone says, there are boys and girls. And I said, now we're getting somewhere. That's good because this is a co-ed school and there's a lot of private schools in the area that are not co-ed. And then someone kind of sheepishly says, there's different races represented. And I'm like, good, now you're getting somewhere. And, and I, and I said, I was like, I, I'll be honest with you, it's not an accident. I'm not the one that handpicks these students, but I know who does, and I know they handpick them, and I know they pick them based on all sorts of things, not just race, but also academic status and so forth. That these are kind of the cream of the crop of the school. And and so I said, so now let me ask you a question. If Pretending you've never been to the school before, what would you say is kind of the percentage racial uh, mix of this school? And they would say, well, according to this picture, it's about 50% minority. And so I say to them, is that true? Is this school 50% minority? And of course, they all laugh, and they're like, no. I mean, I think we have a good mix, but I don't think it's 50%. I think it's more maybe 10%. But after that, they get a, I mean, you can see, it's not just this school, it's every school. Every school does it, every commercial does it. I mean, they always target, and, and some say, well, they're manipulating us. Or they might say, well, this is the era of political correctness. I don't know, I, I sort of look at it a different way. What they're trying to tell you is that our product, or our academics, or something else that we, we sell or offer to the community is not limited to one group of people. That Honda Odyssey that you drive is not limited to this group, right? It's not limited to that. It's, it's open for everyone. And so, and I, and I try to tell them, you know, that's the challenge when you're dealing with a school that's trying to target to a variety of people that you have to kind of market it and in that kind of way. Uh, other organizations that sell something specific like makeup, for example. Here you go, makeup. You don't have to market to men. Men don't care what you have to say, right? <laughs> or Old Spice commercials. They can be so chaotic because they're not marketing to women. They're marketing to goofy men that think it's funny. <laughs> Carlene, always says, Carlene always says, you know, I know that you're watching sports because of the commercials that come on, right? 
They're targeting a very specific audience. They are. Well, I think about this in regards to churches. I've been challenged recently. I've been really chewing on this recently because a friend of mine challenged uh, challenged me with a thought. He said, he said, he said, um, churches are the one organization, the one organism, the community, the one community in the world that's meant to break down the barriers that we often put up. Think about that for a minute. And we do. We put up barriers. We hang out with certain people that are like us. We associate with different people in our economic area, whether it's lower class, middle class, upper class. And churches in this area, churches in the United States, because there's so many and we have so many to choose from, they often fall in those very lines. Economic status, racial divides, worship styles, uh, age groups, right? These are often how churches associate. Why? It's not because we're trying to be divisive, but we go to places where we feel comfortable. And we feel comfortable most when we're around people like us, whether it's personality types or whatever. That's the challenge, I think. And Paul is writing, that's why I say, I don't know that Paul would be writing a letter to a single church. I think that the challenge in our world, in our society, in the 21st century, and here in the United States where there are plenty of churches, is how do we become more diverse? How do we embrace the diversity that Jesus had in mind rather than building up the walls of divide? Paul says... In Galatians 3, he, he makes a similar comment as to Romans 10. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I understand that it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people, and I am very thankful for that. But on the other hand, what Paul is saying has tremendous implications. What he's saying is this, the, the, the breakdown that he often dealt with was the breakdown between Jews and Gentiles. Male and female is a classification that we give to everyone and all species. Male and female is the most basic divide that we set up. And then, of course, slave or free, especially in that time in that part of the world where slavery existed. Notice the three types of classifications that Paul presents. One is racial. One is sexual. And one is economic status. These are often the three things that divide us. And what Paul is saying is that there is no difference. In the book of Romans, when he lays everything out, all of us are condemned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, when we are saved, we are saved by grace through faith. Not by works, not by one's ability to keep the law, not by one's uh, contribution to society. We are saved by grace and grace alone through faith. And that faith is faith alone in the Lord Jesus alone. So what he's saying is, it's not that these things don't matter. It's not that God haphazardly created you male or female. He created you male and female. He, he says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? These things matter. But he was saying, but in regards to what, what Jesus does for us in his life, in 
his body, these things don't matter. These things, he does not, he does not discriminate when it comes to salvation. And so I think there's a couple of challenges for us as a church. You know, Paul is challenging the Romans and the Galatians in this part to look at Jesus. Because when we can, we can look at each other, we can look at the things that make us different. What Paul is saying, here's the thing that puts you all on the same playing field. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. So I'm challenged by a couple of things. One thought is, you know, I think a lot of times we look at churches and, and we say, or, and you may have experienced this at one point or another, and you may say, I don't know that I feel comfortable here anymore. Maybe the makeup of the church has changed. Maybe the personality has changed. And there are plenty of churches that you can go to to find a, a way to connect. Maybe you, you, you jive with that pastor because he has a, the same personality type as you. Maybe uh, the, there's more younger people. Maybe the style of worship is sort of that same. And a lot of people make that decision because they want to go to a place where they feel comfortable, and I understand that. But I wonder sometimes if being at a place where we feel uncomfortable is actually what the Lord would have us to do, to build the diversity of the body. I mean, that's the reason why we have so many different churches, right? It's because uh, individuals have planted churches based on an interest they've had or a ministry they've wanted to do or maybe an outreach that they wanted to pursue. And that's great. But when do we start tearing down the divides that break us apart? And the second challenge is this. You know, we can't control who comes into our doors, what economic class they come from, what racial class, what racial divides there are, what or anything else. We can't control that. But what we can control is what do we do when individuals do come into the church? How do we reach out to them? How do we make them feel comfortable, even though they may be different than us, even though they may uh, have different personality types, look different than us, come from a, a different area in the community than us, have a different job? Because you know what? I don't know what it's like to be a minority. I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a slave. But what I do know is this. And what we do know is this. And what we have in common is this. That all of us were under condemnation. And all of us have been saved by grace through faith because of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.